So we are in our final week in our series in Jonah, and and as we have seen, one of the important pieces of the historical context of this book is really the political tension between Israel and Assyria and the nationalistic pride that Jonah has towards Nineveh. We saw this last week where Jonah had such a pride towards Nineveh, he didn't even want God to show them mercy. He had this preferred status that he wanted to hold on to, and he just wanted God to wipe the nation of Assyria off the map. And so this this context, and really this book of Jonah, haunts us with a question that I want us to address. What effect does nationalism have on our hearts? What effect does nationalism actually have on our faith? And this is a question that's particularly important and relevant to our day. Just this past week was the four-year anniversary of the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, where Dylan Roof, a white man, walked into an African-American church and opened fire, killing a number of precious people. And this past April, John Ernest entered a Jewish synagogue just north of San Diego and opened fire, killing three people and wounding several others. And he did so in the name of white nationalism. But here's what made that instance very interesting— John Ernest was a member of an Orthodox Presbyterian church, which is a conservative evangelical church, a church that preaches the gospel. He was a member. His dad was an elder at a church that is gospel-centered, one that we would find partnership with and kinship with. How does a man like that become a member of a church? Because he didn't get that belief system from his church. How does that happen that a man sit in a gospel-preaching church and harbor such hatred in his heart? that he would open fire and kill others. See, no matter our political leanings, we all have to admit, since the election of Donald Trump as our president, the issues of racism and nationalism have posed significant challenges to our country. And there have been times where our president's rhetoric has not helped the issue. And I'm not laying blame for what happens at his feet, but we have to be honest about the fact that sometimes the language he uses makes the problem worse. But we also have to wrestle with this question, what, can, what should sober us as members of a gospel-centered church that sit under faithful teaching and discipleship? How can that happen and still someone harbor racist beliefs? It should sober us that someone sitting in this congregation this morning, someone that's a part of First City, could be holding on to such beliefs even while they hear the gospel being proclaimed. How does something like that happen? Well, there's really no easy answers. Like we could be as faithful as possible and this still happens. Sin is a very pernicious problem. However, it doesn't change the fact that we need to faithfully confront the sins of our day. Even if that prevailing racist sin isn't in this congregation right now, we must be on guard for it. We must be building a culture where it cannot fester and find comfort and, so- and, and, and solace. We have to wrestle with these questions. But to dial this down a few notches, we, we don't have to just look at the racist flavor of nationalism to see that nationalism can pose a problem to the church. For far too many churches, far too many Christians, being a good follower of Jesus is closely associated with being a member of a particular political party or having a particular patriotic fervor about American greatness. We We so often put love of America right next to love of Jesus, and they're almost indistinguishable from each other. 
Just listen to the lyrics of a song performed by the Gaither Band. Now, some of you in the room are old enough to know who the Gaither Band is. Some of you are like, who's that? But this is Christian music. It's one of the the most popular, best-selling groups in Christian music. In a song called The Statue of Liberty, here are the lyrics. In New York Harbor stands a lady with a torch raised to the sky. And all who see her know she stands for liberty for you and me. I'm so proud to be called an American, to be named with the brave and the free. I will honor our flag and trust in God and the Statue of Liberty. On lonely Golgotha stood a cross with my Lord raised to the sky. And all who kneel there live forever as all the saved can testify. I'm so glad to be called a Christian, to be named with the ransomed and the whole. As the statue liberates the citizen, so the cross liberates the soul. Oh, the cross is my statue of liberty. It was there that my soul was set free. Unashamed, I'll proclaim that a rugged cross is my statue of liberty. Okay, there's some good theology in there. But paralleling the cross with the statue of liberty, intertwining Christian faith and American patriotism and greatness that close together, is that okay? Does that have any impact on our faith? We need to honestly wrestle with this question. And I know this question takes on a particular complexity considering we're in a military community. And many of you in this room have given your lives to defend our nation. And so I want us to jump into this question this morning, but I want us to do so coming from a place of scripture. Because this topic in some ways gets so reduced in our culture to sound bites and social media and the news. And I'll be honest, preparing this sermon this week, I had to be prayerful because it's very easy to get on soapboxes. Like even this morning, Mindy was checking me. Hey, are you in your flesh in any way this morning? Because we need to be informed by God's word. We need to have a picture of what it means to live as people of nations on mission as the church that's informed by scripture. So here's what I want to do. I want to do a very short biblical theology of nations, what scripture has to say. And from these truths, I want to make some points of application for us. And before we jump in, here's what I need to say just as a start. One, this is a massive topic that there is no way I could talk about everything that I could talk about or say everything that I should say in a short sermon. And so if I don't say something that you feel like I should have said, or if something I say or don't say raises questions, please, by all means, let me know and let's talk more about it. Second, some of what I say or don't say may upset you. And that is probably good. That is okay. But don't let that fester. Don't let that sort of cause a root of bitterness to take hold in your heart. Come talk with me again. I would love to dialogue with you. If there are points of disagreement, look, I am still learning. I am still processed. I have blind spots. And I want to be a good and thoughtful and careful leader and pastor to you. So if I tick you off, come talk to me and let's let's, let's wrestle that out as brothers and sisters in Christ. All right. With that as the setup, let's jump in to what scripture has to say. The first point here is that God created the nations. And I want to start here because often what we hear that the solution to toxic nationalism is just to minimize this idea of nations. It is to just say it's better if the world just kind of merged into some globalist mass without any national distinctions. And I would argue such an idea is not biblical. 
that, that God created the nations, that there's a wonderful diversity in God's plan, that the existence of nations is actually a good thing. And so let's see that from scripture. So when the apostle Paul is engaging the philosophers of Athens, we see this in Acts. This is what he tells them. And he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So here's Paul's point. One, God created the nations. He's the one that spread them out and set their boundaries. He's the one that dictated their rise and their fall. And all of the nations share a common lineage. We all come from one man, Adam. It all started from the same place. So we have a shared humanity. We're all made in the image of God. So there's this unity, but there's also this diversity that takes place. And that all nations should seek God. See, we're all under one God. One of Paul's points driving home to that polytheistic culture in Athens is, hey, there's only one God. And he's the God of all people. And we're united under him. And really what Paul is doing is he's summarizing Genesis 1 through 11. And so I'm not going to go through every verse or every, even particular verses, but I just want to sort of highlight. And I would encourage you to read through Genesis 1 through 11 to see how the nations form. And so we get to Genesis 1 and 2, and God creates man and woman in his image, and he gives them this mandate, be fruitful and multiply. Cover the earth, reproduce and cultivate this earth. And so the movement of humanity was to be out and expansive. And then Genesis 4 and 5, we see this momentum happening with the genealogies. We see families developing and and people spreading out over the earth. But then, as we know from Genesis 3, sin has entered the picture. And sin gets so bad that in Genesis 6, God says, game over humanity. And he basically pairs down all of humanity to one family. He sends a great flood and wipes out in judgment all but one family. But when Noah and his family get off the ark, we read this in Genesis 9. God again says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, spread the earth. And then Genesis 10 is a list of the genealogies of the family of of Noah's offspring and how they developed and became the nation's of the ancient world. As these families spread out over time, they formed nations. And these nations had distinct cultures and they had a distinct ethnic makeup and distinct language, which we're going to see here in a second. This isn't to say that there wasn't overlap in genetics and culture, but, but there were the formation of distinct peoples. And what we, we are to see here in scripture is that this is a good thing. This is part of God's design. God creates this wonderful diversity It is beautiful and creative. God has embedded that in the genetics of humans and cultural achievements. God is a God of wondrous creativity. He never just makes one kind of anything, but beautiful diversity. So what Acts 17 summarizes and what Genesis 1 through 10 shows us is we are united in a common humanity. We're all made in the image of God. But there is this wonderful diversity in the unity it was intended that be us being unified as one uh, hum- humanity under one God, but a wonderful diversity that takes place in that unity. This was God's design. And so the creation of the nations, the existence of nations, is part of God's good design. Here's two quick application points for us then. One, celebration. That God created the nations and their diversity means we can celebrate diversity. We can celebrate God's creativity, and we can celebrate our own cultural heritage, Look, distinction is not bad. Think of this in your own family. You have a distinct family that you are part of. 
And that distinction creates unique relationship and unique identity. It is good. And so we don't need to see distinction and difference as inherently bad. Your ethnicity is part of who you are as an embodied human being. And this is God's gift to you. Look, when you are, if you are in Christ and you are raised in a resurrected body, guess what? You're going to be the same nationality. You're going to be the same ethnicity. That is who you are is a core part of your identity. Your culture and your geography give you a sense of place and ground you in relationships and give you a part of your identity. God gives you those things. It is right to honor them in the right way. So we can celebrate our cultural heritage wherever it is that we came from, whether it be American or whether it be British or German or French or Hispanic or Lakota or Cameroonian or Chinese. I think I covered most of the nationalities represented in this room. But we can celebrate the diversity. The second is care. Like being part of a nation, being part of a people means we should care about the group we belong to. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a nation looking out for its own interests in a just way. This is God's design. Again, consider your family. You are to look out, you are to prioritize your family as a distinct group. It is right and good for you to do that. If a man cares about everybody else but neglects his family, we see that that is a problem. And so nations that neglect their own in order to grab power on the global stage perpetuate injustice. We see this quite often. But at the same time, just because we are called to care for those that we are a part of doesn't mean that others aren't important. We see this very clearly in the history of Israel. Israel had borders. Israel had a a distinct people group that they were to care for one another, but at the same time, they were to treat and honor the foreigner and the immigrant among them. They, They were to care for those who were displaced and were a part of them. They were not to abuse or neglect them. And we too, we treat justly the immigrant, the sojourner, the foreigner. And let me just dip my toe very slightly into this topic of immigration because, again, this is a sermon in and of itself, and I'm probably going to just, like, make people angry because I'm not going to say enough. But here, listen to me, church. We care deeply about the immigrants and the sojourner and the foreigner among us. Yes, we want to see our nation have good and sane and just immigration laws, but we don't wait around for our government to get it together for us to show the love of Christ. We love who is in front of us, regardless of where they come from. We love and treat justly those who are in front of us, and we appeal to our government to do the same. Okay, I'm pulling my toe out of that. (laughs) Celebration and care. This is what we see in the truth that God created the nations. Second point, sin corrupts the nations. The problem isn't the diversity of nations, but that sin has entered our world and corrupted our hearts. Sin has corrupted the nations. What was intended to be harmonious diversity has been shot through with pride and division and war and strife. And Genesis 11 gives us a really good picture of the core sins of nations in the famous story of the Tower of Babel. So as the people multiply, many of the groups refuse to spread out, and instead they want to join together for a purpose. This is what they say to one another, and this is Genesis 11.4. Come, let us build ourselves a city 
and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves, pride. Let us come together lest we be dispersed. They were chasing security. So pride and security, these nations wanted to come together and build greatness and build glory and an identity apart from God. They wanted to build their strength and their power and the security on their own. And look how great the sin of nations that are driven by pride and grabbing for security on their own. Like when a nation says, hey, we want to be great, we want to make a name for ourselves, or when they say we are great and we are exalted and better than others, oh, the massive destruction that we see take place both in in the nation and in the world. History shows this time and time again. Like when a nation is driven by security at any cost, how will they not use others and mark a path of control and oppression and conquest and political and economic dominance and exploitation. And what happens when we are sinfully prideful and sinfully seek security, both unity and diversity are corrupted. Because look, unity in and of itself is not the highest good. Unity is only as good as the thing we unify around. And so rather than being unified in a common humanity and submission to the one true God, these nations in Genesis 11 were unified in making their name great. They were unified in rebellion and constructing meaning and purpose apart from God. And the pride of making our name great can replace unity with corrupted diversity of tribalism and racism. One nation exalting itself over another, minimizing and downplaying the humanity of others. And it's interesting that the form of judgment God uses is confusing the language. He prevents unity by creating further diversity. In one sense, you could say that God stiff arms globalism. Does that mean that God is pro segregation? Not in any way like the racist and segregationist wants you to believe. The points in Genesis 11 is that unity based in pride and self-made security always leads to monumental sin. Consider empire. Consider the history of empires and how that plays out. Empire is certainly a form of unity, but it crushes and subjugates diversity. It invites oppression, fuels a slavery ethos, and removes indigenous cultures and replaces them with the culture of invaders. That's a form of unity. But God opposes that kind of unity. And God imposes this sinful unity by injecting more diversity into the system. He confuses language so people couldn't be united in their sin. He uses diversity, which is part of his design, as a safeguard against corrupted unity. So diversity of language in and of itself is not a bad thing. But God uses his own made design. This is the wisdom of God to protect his world from further sin. He keeps us from being as bad as we could be. But we also see God just doesn't deal with the sin of nations by confusing language. Scripture teaches us over and over again, God brings judgment to the nations. He punishes them. He he overthrows them. As David declares in Psalm 9, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The cities you rooted out The very memory of them has perished. God sovereignly created the nations 
and he sovereignly judges them in their sin. He, he judges all nations, and we see this in Scripture. He judges the Egyptians, and he judges the Canaanites, and the Jebusites, and the Ammonites, and the Philistines, and the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. He even judges Israel. God doesn't leave any nation to their pride, to their evil. He doesn't let their oppression go unchecked. And this is important for us to stand, understand that sin corrupts nations, but God judges them. Application point for us then, humility. All peoples, all nations have been corrupted by sin. No nation is exempt. Every skin color, every culture is deserving of God's judgment and that should humble us. Look, this doesn't mean we take sort of the, the nebulous, politically correct stance of like, hey, every culture and every nation is equal in, in as far as like how sinful they are. Some nations have given themselves over to further sin. We see this in scripture. Like Nineveh and the nation of Assyria had given themselves over to sin in some profound ways that Israel hadn't. However, however, that does not negate the fact that all nations are shot through with sin and deserve God's judgment. We don't play this whataboutism. We don't go, well, yeah, yeah, we have our problems, but look at them over there. No, we are humble and we recognize that even the best, quote unquote, cultures are shot through with sin. And listen, white Americans, of which I am one, we need to hear this clearly. We need to hear that all cultural and economic and political systems, humanly speaking, are infected with injustice. We sometimes lionize our culture over and above as if sin has not infected the system. Look for all the benefits of democracy and representative leadership. Political leaders will seek their own interests. We, we need not forget our own history where freedom was not given to everybody. We have a long history of oppression in this country, even as we espouse freedom. Shot through with sin for all the benefits of free market capitalism. We have the haves and the have-nots, and that's just not a matter of who's lazy and who has a good work ethic. There's problems within the system because there is sin in the system. For all the benefits, and, and I tread lightly here, and with all due respect, for all the benefits of our military power and the good that we have done in the world, our military has still been guilty of injustice in the world. And I don't say this to demean any of you who serve our country honorably, but we need to be honest. Hey, you can do the same thing with pastors. I don't care. <laughs> Shoot back at me. But we need to be honest. Look for all the freedoms that we have in our country, for the American dream. Look, there is rank consumerism and sexual immorality and greed and pride and selfish self-reliance. Let us be humble and let us be honest that our nation, our culture, our ethnicity deserves God's judgment. This isn't to bash America. This isn't one of those bash American sermons. This is just be honest about America sermons. And so while it is good that we can celebrate the, the good parts of our, our nation and our cultural heritage, we must always be humble about the sins of our race and our culture and our nation. And knowing that that same sin lives in our hearts, 
knowing that if we are not careful, that sin will overtake us and we will be guilty. Look, there should be no room in the heart of a disciple of Jesus for racism. Full stop. There should be no heart in the room, or no room in the heart of a disciple of Jesus for segregation. Full stop. There should be no room in the heart of a follower of Jesus to look down on another nation or culture and ethnicity and go, hey, you're more degenerate than me. No, but for the grace of God. No, I want God's mercy for you and for me. We all need Jesus. And our heart needs to be postured that way. Humility. So God creates the nations. Sin has corrupted the nations. And we see that God redeems the nations. God doesn't just leave the nations in their sin and resign them to judgment. He is actually going to use a particular nation to bring blessing to all the nations. So I'm going to move quickly through these verses here. In Genesis 12, right after Genesis 11, we see God calling a man by the name of Abram and he makes this promise to him. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from Abram, God was going to bring forth a nation and through this nation, God was going to pour out his blessing on all the nations. And so there was a distinction of one nation, but it was going to be a blessing that went to all nations. And this is what God does. He keeps his promise. He redeems Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt. And this is what God tells the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God reminds him, hey, everybody belongs to me. I am the God of all people, but you are going to be a special nation unto me. You are going to be my distinct people. You are going to be a holy nation unto me. They're going to be governed by God's law and God is going to be their king. But he makes something very clear to them. This has nothing to do with them being great. This has nothing to do with them being more holy or more awesome. This has nothing to do with the fact that they are a particular ethnicity. It is all of grace. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. He's saving them out of his mercy and his grace because he's a God who keeps promises. That is why God saves and chooses Israel. But Israel's salvation wasn't meant to be kept to itself. It wasn't meant to be hoarded in one nation. They didn't go settle the promised land and just cut themselves off from other people. No, Israel was to testify to the one true God. Their, their praise was meant to spill out as a way to draw the nations to the one true God. Psalm 67 says this, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all 
the people's praise you. The blessing that God poured out on, in, in salvation that he poured out on Israel and the renewal he poured out on Israel was to be experienced by all. It was to be spilled over into all the nations. God, or Israel, was to make God's saving power and his goodness and his holiness known. Yet they fail in this. Like sometimes we see them being faithful and we see little glimpses of God saving the nations. And Nineveh in the book of Jonah is an example of that. But ultimately Israel, rather than being this light, rather than being this this community that praised and drew people to the true worship of God, they fell into sin. They, They were corrupted by sin. Their nation fell just like every other nation. But praise God, the blessing, the promise given to Abraham wasn't dependent upon the nation. It wasn't dependent upon all of the people. In Genesis 22, after Abraham shows a willingness to sacrifice his son, Isaac, God again declares his promise to bless Abraham. This is what he says. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. Sounds very similar to what he said in Genesis 12. However, what's a little hard to see here in the English, but it's clear in the Hebrew, first offspring, that first word offspring is plural. The second one is singular, meaning there is going to be one particular offspring that is going to be the conduit of blessing. One particular offspring that is going to bless the nations. Jesus Christ the offspring of Abraham, the the true son of God, the true Israel, the one who was faithful all the way to the end. The blessing of the nations is going to come through one particular person in the nation. And through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God redeems all the nations. God pours out his blessing, not just on one nation, not just on one culture, not just one, on one ethnicity, but all nations, all people, all tribes, all tongue. And what is beautiful is that from all the nations, he is creating one new nation, bringing that unity and diversity again. He's restoring his design in a beautiful way, united in Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between nations between two groups of people that are at war with each other, he has brought them together and made them one in Jesus Christ. And then the apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice the language. The same language that God used for Israel, now he uses for the multinational, multi-ethnic church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. This is the church. This is all of us brought together and united in Christ. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God's design of unity in diversity. And what's also beautiful and fascinating, that separation of language that took place in Genesis 11 that curse that God put on the pride of the nations. When you get a Pentecost, Acts chapter two, what happens? All the nations come together and they're praising in each other's language. But that language is being unified around Christ. God undoes the curse of Babel by bringing the church together, 
by uniting us into one. And so our language is no longer a dividing wall. Our language is actually a picture of the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ. And in our diverse languages, we're united in praise of one God, united in praise to Christ as we did this morning. How beautiful to hear the Apostles' Creed, time-tested truth being declared by numerous languages. How beautiful to sing in both English and Spanish this morning as a picture of that blessing that was poured out on Pentecost. And then as Eric read this morning, the glimpse of our end. This is where we're headed to. Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The fulfillment of God's plan in Christ put on full display. The salvation of the nations. Look, God is faithful to keep his promises. God will accomplish his purpose. That is our hope, church. That is where we put all of our chips. That is what we give our life to, to see the nations be made disciples of Jesus. And so here's our point of application here. It speaks to our hope and to our mission. See, that God himself is redeeming the nations, that he's building a kingdom, a holy nation out of every tribe and tongue. It should orient our hope. This is what should shape our hearts. The category of hope is important because what you put your hope in determines where you put your love and your loyalty and your time and your energy and your resources. What you put your hope in is what you give your life to. Where is your hope? I think we need to ask ourselves this question and distinctly as those who are part of the United States. Is our hope in the kingdom of God and his plan of salvation or is our hope in American greatness? We need to be honest and assess where we have put our hope because make no mistake, ethnic and cultural and nationalistic pride is after your heart. It is after your heart. The sin of Babel pulls at us. Find your identity in your ethnicity. Find your greatest identity in your nation and in your culture and your political power. Find security in national greatness Do what you need to do to to build security around you, to build your empire. Oh, the sin of Babel pulls at our hearts and celebration of people in place, which can be good, very easily gets weaponized against us and our sinful hearts make good things, ultimate things. Let me talk about how this plays out in our nation. Look, what, what is often called the American dream, working hard to build a level of wealth and comfort and success for you and your family. But that is not in and of itself a bad thing. We should work hard. We should want to provide for our families and and create a level of security and stability and comfort for our families. And and, and patriotism, a a sense of pride in place in people and and service to see that that a culture and and a society thrives. Like those are good things. And I thank God for those of you that are giving your lives in an honorable way to serve our country, both in the military and maybe in public service. Like those things are good, but listen, they're not morally neutral. Like they will shape your heart. And if left unchecked, they will shape your hope. If left unchecked, they will become the thing that you most put your hope in, the most put your identity in, the most put your security in. 
And this is why we have to consistently ask ourselves the question, how deeply have you been formed by the sense of national pride and national endurance? Because look, nations want permanence. They want to last. And they want you to get behind whatever agenda they have so that they do last. They want to shape your hope around their permanence so you'll give yourself to that. So to what degree is your hope in the permanence of this country? To what degree have you been formed to put your hope in this nation to the point where the United States and Western civilization and free market economics, or if you're more into regulated economics and social welfare, cool. But to what point are those things your hope? To what point have you put your hope into them so much that your sense of security and identity rises and falls with the greatness of America and the permanence of its political and economic and cultural power? Let me ask it a little more stark. Can your faith endure American decline? Look, nations rise and fall. All nations will pass. This, this is just the truth of both scripture and history. Can your faith endure American decline? Like if your hope is wrapped up in the permanence of this nation, like you're going to give the bulk of your heart and your money and your time, and your loyalty, and your voice, and your emotional energy to making sure that the economic, and cultural, and political order remain. And here's what you will be reduced to, if I can put it starkly. A patriotic consumer. Is that all you are? Is that all you've been called to? To be a patriotic consumer, giving your life over to the permanence of something that will not last. Make no mistake, the power and political structure of this nation will one day end. God will bring it to an end. Our hope is not in American greatness. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. If I can push a little further, because it's very important that we understand how our hope is shaped and formed. We need to be careful of the ways that we allow our hearts to be shaped in other ways. We want our greatest hope to be oriented around God and his kingdom. We want our hearts to be shaped in the hope of Christ and his power to save, his power to overcome evil, his kingdom that will last for eternity. Church, this is why we do not mix worship and nationalism. And I say this with all humility and all due respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ and other churches who do this. And I may get some emails for this, but I'm going to say it. The flag has no place in the worship of God. The American flag has no place in this space. Not because we hate America, but because what's going on here is about a deeper hope, a deeper joy, a deeper identity. Our banner is not the stars and stripes. Our banner is that, the cross. And if we bring in symbolism of American nationalism, what ends up happening? When we celebrate both our our place and our people, along with the worship of God, divided hearts, divided hopes, divided faith, divided loyalty. Like the deepest core of who we are isn't being shaped around Christ alone. Is it no wonder that people in our culture and our country will baptize their sinful pursuit of the American dream or their sinful pursuit of politics or sinful Racism and segregation with Christianity. Why? 
because in this country, we have so often shaped our hearts around both God and country in ways that have been unhelpful. And we cannot mix, we cannot pull the two apart. We can't see where one ends and the other begins. And so church, I am after us worshiping God. I am after us finding our identity and our joy and our hope in God and Christ alone. I have no interest in bashing this country. I love this country. I'm grateful that I am part of this country. But look, no matter how much God has poured out his blessing on this country, and no matter how much Christianity has influenced the the making of this nation and our culture and our laws, the United States is not God's chosen nation. Do, Do not read the United States back into the Old Testament and do not claim the promises that belong to the church for this particular country. Look, there is one nation that is going to endure and it doesn't have a president and a Congress and a Supreme Court. It has a resurrected reigning king and he's sitting on the throne. It doesn't have a constitution. It has a covenant. That is our hope, church. And so when we talk about blending nationalism and Christianity, this is what we are talking about. We're saying, where is our hope? And so church, what defines us most is our identity in Christ. And so we can, yes, say we are a people that belong to a culture and an ethnicity. And we can celebrate the ways that that is a gift to us and and, and the ways that it is part of our identity. But that always gets submitted to King Jesus. That always gets submitted to the identity of Christ, our identity in Christ. And let me close with this saying, our hope drives our mission. Jesus said to make disciples of every nation. And what this means is, church, is that our mission, what we give our heart to, is not making America great again but going into the world and making disciples, going into the world and seeing that every tribe, every tongue, every nation becomes a worshiper of Jesus, becomes a part of the family of God. Yes, we are a people in a place. And so we pour out our lives here. We want to see the gospel renew our city. We want to see the gospel renew our state. We want to see the gospel renew our nation. But that has nothing to do with making America great again. It has everything to do about the kingdom of God advancing. And also, our eyes are lifted beyond just ourselves. We want to see the gospel also renew Mexico and Canada and England and France and Germany and Africa and Asia. All over the world, we want to see the gospel renew. And so we give ourselves to that. We give ourselves to making disciples. We welcome those who are different to celebrate our unity and celebrate our diversity. We love those who are in front of us and we go into our world to share the gospel. So church, this is what I want the ethos of First City to be. I want us to be able to properly recognize who we are, recognize our place and our people, but also recognize that we are caught up in this great grand story of God redeeming all the nations. And we are united in Christ in this beautiful diversity. Let us give our lives to that mission. Amen?